Welcome back to our series, Mankind versus Wild, where we are learning how to deal with living in this crazy world that we're living in these days. We're learning how to uh, survive, and, and not just survive, but actually to thrive, like to really make a difference, despite all the stuff that's going on around us. And we've been looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. It's the second letter that he wrote. So get your Bibles out and turn there, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just have it kind of laid open. We'll get there in just a little bit. But as I've told you already in this series, one of my favorite shows is Man vs. Wild and my hero, Bear Grylls. And Bear Grylls is, is evidently not afraid of heights because this guy will perch himself on the sides of cliffs where, I mean, just looking at that gives, makes my skin crawl. And I don't know, anybody else besides me just have that fear of heights? I mean, I look at that picture and the back of my legs start to shake, all right? Because it's just like, I, I just don't like that. I don't like being one missed step away from disaster. And as Paul writes Timothy, he's really, really concerned that Timothy doesn't get too far out on the edge and take a misstep spiritually or theologically and end up in some kind of uh, abyss, free fall of false teaching, free fall of speculation about what the truth is. So if you're in 2 Timothy with me, let's take a look and see what Paul said to him and is saying to us over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. That means Bible-centered, Christ-centered teaching. Now look what he says in verse 3. For a time is coming, Timothy, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. In other words, they're not going to want to hear the Bible. They're not going to want to hear what God has to say and the way God wants to say it. He says they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. We certainly see that in our culture. Just have to watch television and look at all the talking heads that are out there who are kind of spewing their philosophy of life and and uh, so on and so forth. And of course, uh, just recently, uh, Oprah decided, you know, she's not going to have her show anymore. And people are mourning and crying. I'm celebrating over it. But uh, anyway, you know, it's just everybody's looking for someone to tickle their ear, to, to tell them something new, something different that will make them feel happier about themselves and happier about life. And and Paul says that that day's coming. We're living in that day. And, and Paul says, Timothy, in essence, don't cave into that. Don't go the same way. Don't tell people what they want to hear. Tell them what they need to hear. Tell them what God has to say. And that's not, that's not only true with regards to the culture around us. It's also true within the church because sometimes, you know, as a pastor, as a teacher, the temptation is to want to preach our feelings or our speculations 
or sometimes to want to get a crowd and to say what we think will get us that crowd. Paul says, don't, don't you dare as a teacher, as a leader, don't you dare tell people what you want them to hear or what they want to hear. You got to tell them what God wants them to hear. They will follow their own desires will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths, ideas, things that have been said. And there are so many myths existing in, in the day of Paul and Timothy. There are myths that exist today. Verse 5, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. He says, don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given to you. So, in other words, what Paul is saying here to Timothy is make sure you stay grounded in the truth and make sure that you live by that truth and make sure that what you teach and preach is all about that truth. And that brings us to a really interesting uh, topic this weekend uh, about a, a, a preacher, a wonderful communicator, he's actually a very dynamic communicator and author, Rob Bell, who pastors Marshall Church over in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And and uh, I, have, I have really enjoyed the seminars that he has done that I've attended. I've enjoyed uh, a lot of his writings. I've enjoyed his NUMA videos. But I got to tell you, I really have not enjoyed his most recent contentious book, Love Wins. In my mind, it's a very dangerous book. In my mind, Rob has left the reservation of truth and is precariously perched on the side of a ledge and is flirting with what I would consider to be false teaching. How many of you have read the book, Love Wins? Anybody besides me? Okay. How many of you have heard about the book, Love Wins, and the controversy swirling around that? You might be wondering, well, what's the big deal about the book? Why, why is it such a big deal? Why are people all uptight about it? And I thought that what I would do is I would let Rob speak for himself. I just want you to watch this uh, couple-minute uh, video, which was used as a promotion for the book, and listen carefully. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and we put them on display, and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it. And lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it, but not everybody found it that compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note, they had written, reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell? He is? And someone knows this for sure and, and felt the need to let the rest of us know? Will only a few select people make it to heaven and will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions. The real question, what is God 
like because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be a part of that? See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. What you discover in the Bible is so surprising, unexpected, and beautiful that whatever we've been told or taught, the good news is actually better than that, better than we could ever imagine. The good news is that love wins. So the question is, is it true that only a few people are going to make it into heaven? Are billions and billions of people going to spend an eternity in hell with no hope, no recourse of repentance and forgiveness? And what is the ticket into heaven? How do you, how do you really get into heaven? What do you have to say? What do you have to do to, to get into heaven? What is God like? And how can God be love and how can we really trust God if God is angry at us and his son has to actually take God's anger on himself so that we can be loved by this God? I mean, what kind of God is this God? Is it possible that what we have all been taught for so long about what is the good news is really bad news and we've missed the real story and we need to understand the, the new story, the, the story that is truly the, the good news. Love wins in the end, that God always gets what he wants. Rob Bell is the master at asking great questions. And I don't fault him for that. It's one of the things I like about his style. I mean, he's very creative in how he does things. But it's one thing to ask honest, open questions. It's another thing to ask questions that are really almost like statements that are meant to take you down a pathway toward his ideas or his ideology and his thinking and kind of manipulate you along that pathway to get you there. And that's what Rob does, those questions. At first, the questions seem very innocent, very open, and very honest. But if you listen carefully to the questions, they're, they're biased. They're questions asked with some presuppositions about what the ending should actually be. And I have, I have a real problem with that kind of questioning, that kind of thinking. The problem with the book that Rob has written is that it's very emotionally charged. Rob steps back and sees what the world looks like, and I believe he has a very caring and tender heart, and he sees so many lost people, and he sees such a, such a terrible condition in the world, and 
something inside of him just says to him, there's no way that these people are going to spend an eternity in some kind of hell. That just doesn't sound like love. And God is love and God just wouldn't do something like that. That's his presupposition that a loving God is not going to send anybody to hell. And a loving God, if they do go to hell, is going to find some way, provide some way out of that experience because in the end God loves in the end God gets what he wants and I have a real problem with the fact that God gets what he wants because that would mean that God wanted man to sin in the book of Genesis and I don't think God wanted anybody to sin but I do know that God makes it really clear he does want everyone to come to repentance and to believe on him say well how does how does, how does Rob get there? How does, he, how, how does he get to that presupposition? And I want to use an illustration to help, help us understand how a lot of people are thinking these days. A lot of what are called the uh, emergent church leaders are thinking. Not all, but a lot are thinking this way these days. And I'm going to use an illustration that you'll see pop up on the screen As you look at that, all it is is a page of Scripture. And if I were to ask you, what do you see? You would say, well, we see, you know, words. We see verses. We see the Scriptures that are up there. And I would say, your eyes are working. That's very good. That's what I see as well when I look up there. But there's also some white space up there, empty space. And most of us look at the white, empty space, and we don't think twice about it. We just are focused on the truth that we see there. But there are other people who, when they look at that, they see the white space, and they say, you know, that white space is there to remind us that we have freedom to interact with those words on that page. And we have freedom to interpret those words on that page. That God wants us to poke the words and God wants us to ask questions about the words. And sometimes those words mean different things in different cultures, in different times and in different experiences. And I have the freedom to kind of interpret those words based on uh, what I know about history or what I know about science or uh, what I'm feeling or what the culture is feeling and what the culture is thinking. And so what Rob does is Rob kind of goes back at the Bible and with his presupposition about who God is and how God would act and what he thinks should happen to people who are, who are going to die and who are going to go to hell, he goes kind of back into it and he reads hope out of it. He, he reinterprets it emotionally to basically agree with his presupposition. And so he takes many, many, many dozens of verses in the book and he strings them together and many of them he takes out of the context. In other words, he has them say something that if you read all the verses around them, they're not really saying In some instances, he will quote people like Martin Luther, the great reformer, and using one particular quote out of a letter that Martin Luther wrote to a friend, in which if you just see the part that Rob takes out, it sounds like Martin Luther was saying that it's very possible that after a person dies, if they're in hell, that that they would be able to actually then realize who Jesus is, repent, and have eternal life. But when you trace down the quote and read the actual letter, which I've done, you will discover that Martin Luther actually meant the opposite. He wasn't talking about the fact that there's hope after death. If you look at his quote in the context, what he's saying is there is no hope after death. Rob takes 
Bible story after Bible story and reassigns that Bible story new insights and new meanings that those stories just don't have in order to arrive at the presupposition that maybe hell is not final, that perhaps uh, uh, hell is only temporary, and that God is just going to keep giving us an offer that we cannot refuse, and someday hell will be emptied except for a few crazy people who just want to stay in hell for all of eternity. Perhaps, Rob says, that Jesus is actually working in many other religions anonymously to kind of bring people to some sense of faith that will eventually save them. And he is like totally, totally on the edge, teetering over that edge into false teaching. And the thing about Rob is he asks all these questions, but he never really tells you where he ends up. And that gives him a lot of wiggle room to kind of move around and not be pinned down. But the the insinuations are, the intention is, or the feeling you get after reading that is that, you know what, hell isn't so bad after all. Hell is really what we experience here on earth and that perhaps in the future for those who do go to hell, there will be a way out of it. It's certainly something God doesn't want to have happen. In essence, he reinterprets who God is, who Jesus is, what it means to be saved. He reinterprets what heaven is and what hell is. And it's a real dangerous place to be. Now, I have no problem asking hard questions. I think we ought to ask hard questions of anything that we're going to believe in. However, When you approach something doctrinal, when you approach something like the doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of hell, it's one thing to raise questions and then give your answers to it, what you think the answers are. But if you're going to be fair about it, then also also share the other views, the other perspectives and how other people use scriptures and how they arrive at their conclusions. Don't just blow it all off and only go with what you think. That is wrong. That's not right. That is misleading to people who don't know the Bible or who are too lazy to read the Bible. It's misleading to young Christians. It's misleading to this younger generation. It's misleading to the people that he has such tremendous influence on. It is what Paul was warning Timothy about. Preach the word of God. It's plain and simple meaning. Don't mess around. Don't reinterpret it to say what you feel, or what you think. So what I want to do is I want to answer Rob's questions. And I want us to answer them biblically, not based on our feelings or our emotions of what we might think. So let's take a look at his questions. We'll put it up on the screen, and then I'll give you answers. And by the way, if you're sitting there and you're wanting to take down all the stuff that I'm going to share with you, I'm going to post it. Uh, on, on Sunday or Monday on my blog, all right? And you go to the website, go to my blog, and everything I'm going to say from here on in, you'll have it right there. So you don't have to, like, you type A's can relax, okay? Come with me, right? Deep breath. <sighs> you can relax and just listen and take it in, all right? It'll be there for you, all right? So, you know, here's one of the first questions that, that, Rob, that Rob asked. And I just want to make sure at 111th that everybody took a breath there as well because I know there's type A's at 111th. Deep breath, ready? One, two, three. Ah, exhale. Very good. All right. So the first uh, question that, that Rob asked, we, we heard it in the video, is Gandhi in hell? He is? And someone knows this 
for sure. Nobody knows this for sure. Shame on the person who took the audacity to write that because only God is the righteous judge. Only God knows where people are going to spend their eternity. However, the Bible makes it very clear in its context that only those who call on the name of Jesus for salvation are going to spend an eternity in heaven with him. And those who don't are going to spend an eternity in what is called hell. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of who? That was sad. The name of who? The name of Jesus. That is the only name. He's the only means by which we might be saved. In John chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus said, There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Man, that is pretty plain and clear, don't you think? That there's only one that you can believe in, one who can actually save you. John chapter 8, verse 21 says this. Later, Jesus said to them again, I'm going away. You will search for me, but will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. The people ask, is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean? You cannot come where I am going. Jesus continued, you are from below. I am from above. You belong to this world. I do not. Verse 24, that is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Underscore bottom line. Those verses are really, really clear. And what Rob has a tendency to do is use the verses that, that support his presupposition and kind of blow off and ignore the verses that are contrary to it. If you're going to use certain verses to arrive at your conclusion, then list the other verses that disagree and tell us why they're wrong. Don't just blow them away. Any scholar knows that. you got to do that. And I don't know where Gandhi is today. And I don't know where you're going to be today. But I know this much. The Bible says the only way I have the, the, the confidence that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven is if my faith is placed in Jesus Christ and him and him alone. Let's look at another question that Rob asks here. Will only a few select people make it to heaven? Will only a few select people make it to heaven? Now, you know, the way you pose a question makes a statement, doesn't it? I mean, if I say only a few select people, it sounds like God's going, I want him on my team and her on my team, and I want the rest of you. That's what it makes it sound like. And that's not the case. Right? That's not the case. Rob never deals with Romans chapter 1. He doesn't deal with sin. He doesn't deal with the issue of justice. And what he fails to remind us all is that God doesn't want anybody to perish. And God assigns nobody to hell, predetermines nobody to go to hell. Hell is a result of a choice that I make. No one will ever be able to say to God, you did not give me a chance. That's what Romans 1 talks about. And this summer in August, I'm going to deal with a series of messages on tough, tough topics. All right? Really difficult issues. Now, cover it when we, when we get there. 
But the reality is people have a choice. They can choose for God or against God. And it may appear that many have chosen against God. Listen to this passage of scripture. It comes out of Luke chapter 13. He says, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. Verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He replied, Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but will fail. Why? Because they won't put put their faith in Christ. Verse 25. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, But we ate and drank with you and taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. And people will come from all over the world, from east and west, north and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then, and some who are greatest now will be the least important then. And it's a picture to the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is there's going to be this great banquet in heaven. You're going to look in the windows, and you're going to see some people that you are shocked are there. And you're going to think to yourself, Abraham's there, Isaac's there, Jacob's there. I should be there. Look how religious I am. And Jesus is saying, you aren't going to be in there because it's not your religion that saves you. It's your faith in me. And there are no second chances afterwards. No matter how you feel, no matter how emotionally you want it to be there, Jesus says there will be no second chances afterwards. But you know what's really interesting? Over in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, you want a picture of heaven it says that there was a multitude of people standing before the throne of god which no one could count so when you listen to rob ask the question it sounds like there's only gonna be 20 of us there but you get the book of revelation it's a countless multitude who are standing there before god next question rob asks and will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? Emotionally, I, humanly speaking, coming from a human perspective, thinking that we deserve better, I, I can understand the frame of that question. But the reality is, there are, is none of us are guiltless. See, that's the deal. None of us were born not guilty. We are all born guilty of sin. We all deserve to spend an an eternity away from, from God, an eternity in hell. That's the bottom line. The miracle is that God gives us any hope or any chance. And and what Rob does in the book is he loves to go to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, and talk about the, the wonderful gates of heaven and how they're open for people to perhaps come in at any time. That's what he suggests. But he skips over Uh, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20, which is all about judgment. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 10. Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning fire, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. 
I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, it sounds like you're saved by what you do. That's not what that verse means. It means that your deeds are used to judge against you. That you were insufficient in being good enough and doing enough good things to qualify for heaven. How do you get your name in the book of life? By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It is not what I do for God. It is what God has done for me, undeserving me. God is not accountable for millions or billions That is their choice, their rebellion, their sin. Let's move on. Rob states or asks, and if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or be converted to be born again? How does one become one of these few? It's a ridiculous question. John 3.16 gives the answer. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. In John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent, that you believe in Jesus. That's how you come to know eternal life. And what Rob loves to do is he likes to go to other verses where Jesus is talking to people and Jesus doesn't come right out and say, you must believe on my name. Like the rich young ruler, he says, go and sell everything you have and come follow me. Well, implied in that verse is put your faith in me. Jesus makes it so clear in so many verses. It's about a relationship with him. It's about putting our faith in who he is and what he has done for us. But let's move on with Rob. And then there's the question behind the questions. The real question. What is God like? Because millions and millions of people are taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. So what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues us from God. But what kind of God is that that we would need to be rescued from this God? That is a totally misleading, misdirected question that makes God out to be some kind of Shrekian ogre, right? That he's just angry, and he's so angry, he takes his, angry out, he takes his anger out on his son. How can, how can you trust a God like that? How could a God like that possibly be loving? Well, the reality is, God is a God of love. But he's also a God of justice. Love demands justice. It just demands it. Love gives freedom. What kind of father would I be to my children? What kind of grandfather would I be if I never disciplined them? If they didn't experience some justice from from their dad or from their granddad? I wouldn't be much of a father at all. Because I love them, I discipline them. Because I love them, I lay out consequences. And if they they go against those uh, rules and directions, they then experience those consequences. Our God is a holy God. He's a loving God. 
our God is a gracious God. He's a God of justice. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, listen to this. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, remember that, because you are stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers through who? Through Jesus. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness. It's just the way it is. Bell goes on, he asks, how could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? And when I read that uh, question, I thought right away, my mind was taken to the garden. And I thought of Satan when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. What was the premise of Satan's temptation? It was a questioning of God's goodness. It was a questioning of God's love. If God is a loving and God is a good God, then he wouldn't keep that fruit from you and he certainly wouldn't kill you if you took it. And that's the mess we're in today, right? Because man, man listened to the tempter instead of listening to God and did not respect God's holiness and God's justice. Bell asks, or Bell states and then then asks the question, this is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it has an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be a part of that? Now, I can agree with some of that. I can agree that we as evangelicals sometimes say and do the, the most ridiculous things, Sometimes we get on our hobby horses. We, you know, we, we camp on minor things. Sometimes we fuss and fight with each other. I, I know we can be absurd. And sometimes even in describing salvation, we can be hard-nosed and not emphasize the love of God. We just like to pound on the justice of God. And that is just as severely unbalanced as, as Rob Bell is only camping and wanting to talk about the love of God. But here's the, here's the deal. There's only one way to salvation, and it is through a relationship with Jesus Christ and him alone. It does not come any other way. It's not an absurdity, and it's not an inconsistency that God demands that we put our faith in his son, that God demands we respect his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness. And then we don't fear that. And there's a sense in which I feel like Rob is dumbing God down. And so I, I, let me give you just kind of an illustration. It's helped me with this whole thing. It's kind of gross, so hang in there, all right? Let you imagine, if, imagine you have a little boy. Girls wouldn't do this, I guess. But imagine, you have, imagine your son, all right, 12, 13 years old. He starts pulling the legs off a grasshopper, all right? Most men would look at their son and go, yeah, all right? Most moms would go, gross, stop it. But you wouldn't think much about it. But what if he grabs a frog, okay, and he starts ripping the legs off the frog? You would probably get a little concerned then, right? What if he grabs, what if he catches a robin in the yard? And he starts yanking the, the legs out of the robin. 
I mean, you're, now you're like really getting concerned, right? I mean, what's wrong? Wait, I got a sociopath on my, ha- on my hands here. What if he grabs a puppy and starts yanking the legs off that puppy? Now, you're, now you are really, really concerned and really upset. What if he grabs a baby and starts trying to yank the legs out of that baby? What are you going to do? You will do whatever it takes to rescue that child. What is the difference between the grasshopper and the baby? It's the value you assign to it. We don't assign much value to the grasshopper, so we don't really care what happens to it. But we assign huge value to that baby, and we care desperately that the baby is respected and loved. Same thing is true with God. Same thing is true with God. What kind of value do you assign to God? The value of a grasshopper, that you don't fear him, don't respect him, don't worship him, don't see him as the all in all? Or do you see God with such huge value? The God of the universe, our creator, holy and just, that it causes you to fear and tremble before him and love him and respect him and honor him as holy and a just God. See, God demands both, doesn't he? My fear with the direction that Rob goes, those questions, is is that he kind of dumbs down that aspect of God's regalness, God's justice and God's holiness, which we have to keep in tension with God's grace and with God's goodness. Last question. Bell says, you see, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. And my fear is that Rob Bell's character of our God is actually a very small God. And the caricature of God, when you look at the Bible and let it speak for him itself, is a great God. It's a loving God. It's a holy God. And it's also a just God. You and I are living in strange times. And the Bible has never been more important and more clear as it is today of the battle that we're facing in this culture. Even from within the church of thoughts and ideas that are not always compatible with the scriptures. That's why you need to know the word of God. Amen. And not take it for granted. And you parents and grandparents, you need to know the word of God for the sake of your children, your young adults who read this, hear this, and they want to talk to you about it, and you don't know how to answer it. And it baffles you. But even beyond that, as I've really thought this through, one of the things I've appreciated about Rob Bell writing this book by the way, I don't question his salvation. I, I like him. I just really don't understand why he went off the reservation on this. But one of the things it's caused me to do is appreciate the fact that at least he's dealing with the topic. You know what most of us do? Most of us who are Christians, you know what we do when it comes to this whole idea of people spending an eternity in hell? We just ignore it. We're like agnostics. Somebody walks up to us and says, do you believe that millions and millions of people are going to spend eternity in hell? How about those people who live in China or North Korea or those people who live in Vietnam or this place or that place in Africa? you really believe all these people are going to hell? And you know how we respond? Normally we respond, we just say, well, you know, I just don't know about that. I guess that's, I'm just going to leave that in God's hands. And, and then we kind of move on with our life. And I stop and I go, really? God hasn't said anything about that? 
God hasn't made anything clear in his word that there's only one way into heaven and that's through his son, Jesus Christ, and him alone. You haven't heard that? You don't believe that? Yeah, I've heard that. I believe it and I can't ignore it. And at the Compass Church, we cannot ignore it. And I can't, I can't worry about any other church and what they do. But folks, you and I, we can make sure that with every breath we have, with our hearts, that we bleed for a lost world. That we make Christ known through our lives and through our conversations and with our dollars and with our time. So that everyone who has contact with us will come to know what faith is and how to have that faith in Jesus Christ. You and I don't have time to argue the theology of it. Who would you rather have be wrong? Rob Bell or me? Think about that. If I'm wrong, we're still getting the gospel out. But if Rob Bell is wrong, we've made a fundamental error and a fundamental mistake by misleading people down a pathway that makes them think there are second, third, and fourth chances, and we don't have to take this whole thing so seriously after all. Talk about life and death to talk about eternity. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to wake up. And if that's what Rob's book has done, then it does serve one good purpose to drive us to the truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just pray and ask that you would help us not to throw stones at the people we disagree with. And I don't want to throw stones, Lord, at Rob. But God, in the spirit of grace, I feel like we need to speak forth the truth and give a different perspective. The perspective that so many godly men and women from Pentecost on have held to and is in these days being questioned and suspicioned. God, I pray that you would help us in a spirit of love and grace to be conscious and aware of the people who are lost around us and show them and teach them the good news that love wins because Jesus saves. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.